the quantum mechanics. Yes, we are the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. And I have been thinking quite a lot about uh, the Enfield Poltergeist tapes, the episode we did last week, Ben. Um, and we've had a lot of really great comments and uh, and questions about it. So I'm just gonna I've just picked a couple of them because I think there's a couple of points worth talking about from last week. Sure. Uh, the first one is from uh, someone called the Cooler King, and I, I think he's referring to the bit where we were talking about Jeff the mongoose. We were talking about Bill, who was the guy who was supposed to be the poltergeist. I, I guess is the best way of describing it. Um, yeah. And the fact that Bill said on the tapes, on the Enfield Poltergeist tapes, that he had a hemorrhage or and that he had died in the chair downstairs. And Cooler King raised the point, uh, if it was quick, that he was in his seat and it was an instant, I guess, instant death. How would you know when you had passed over? Which I thought was a really interesting question. Yeah. Uh, and it is and like i suppose <laughs> i can't possibly <laughs> come on ben answer that one <laughs> i i can't comment with any actual knowledge but what i would say is that in in that episode i was postulating that not only was this thing aware of what it was doing but perhaps it was also a trickster spirit and it appeared to know things which um for example the kids couldn't know and if we relate that back to the jeff the mongoose episode Mm -hmm. it appears like um that entity was telling people in the house things that they couldn't possibly have known so i think it's very hard to know what anything knows once it passes over and we also have to take the sort of decision as to whether the thing that they are talking to is Bill or it is something else or yeah. it's a hoax. And yeah. that, I think, I don't think I can say any more than that on the matter. I, I agree. The only thing I'll add, I, I'm going to go with that. Yeah, it's just being mischievous. Yeah. So he knows we're not going to be able to know. He knew that this question was coming up when he, uh, when the poltergeist bill or not was in that enfield house um another comment that we had uh we're in a number of groups on facebook which is great uh david from the ghosts huntings and things that go bump in the night group which is one of my favorite names for a paranormal group on facebook i have to say um he said and i thought this as well actually after we did the episode he says the girls admitted it was all fake in the end, which I I seem to have some recollection of that, but I, I don't think that is necessarily true, right? Well, it is very interesting. So in their adult lives, no, they have, to the best of my knowledge, and obviously I don't know them intimately, they might have yep. told people down the pub that, but in terms of what has been publicised, no, they have not come out and said this was fake. However, there was an interview for BBC Scotland when they were kids and uh, Janet was asked the question, how does it feel to be haunted by a poltergeist? 
And I think this is perhaps what our commenter is referring to because she says it's not haunted and Margaret says in a hushed tone, shut up. And those those comments have been cited by a number of investigators to say, okay, that is the girls admitting that it is faked. But we so don't like, really... Like Sabine advertent confession that right. or, or, or being slipped up, you know, yeah, or slipping up. Yes. But when what we were analysing was um, the Gross and Playfair tapes and Gross has always maintained that he believed that no trickery was involved in the recording of those tapes. And, like, there are... There are people that disagree with them. Of course, they are. It's a contentious case. Um, in 2016, we know that Chris French wrote an article about, I think it was entitled Five Reasons Why the Case Was a Hoax. But those were very much based on, I wouldn't say his prejudice, but his point of view. And I think you also have to say that he wasn't there. And Maurice uh, Gross was there. And I don't know, I think it's really hard. I think the, the long and short of it is in their adult lives, in modern times, neither of those now women have said that this was a fake. Right. And you could say, oh, that's because there's been films and there's money coming in. Sure, that's possible. But I would just like to draw this story back to... Playfair and Gross, who at the time were convinced that nothing was happening that was untoward in terms of faking it. And, of course, going back to those original police reports where um, it, it sort of all stems from and the fact that the police were reporting being hit by Lego bricks and all of that stuff. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, like, with, with our podcast, again, I'm the, the, the whole point about that book and the tapes was you make your own mind up. And if you hear all that and you still don't believe it, that's absolutely fine. I'm not trying to convince you. It's just really super interesting that the two people who were sort of emotionally invested, and I think emotionally invested is a key term here because although, like I made the point in the time in that podcast, that Playfair went on to write a reasonably successful book, but it, you know, it was it would have bought him a Fiat Uno rather than a Porsche. Right. It's like right. these aren't a Ferrari. Yeah, these aren't these. This is not a big money spinner. Yeah. Um, for those people, they don't own the film rights. They don't own the rights to the story. They're just investigators. You you have to kind of go. Well, look, they said they didn't think. They didn't think that the girls were faking it. The police were perplexed. We have these third-party stories for people who have absolutely nothing to gain or indeed lose by saying, you know, oh, well, there was a red cushion on the roof. How did that happen? It's like it's a perpetual mystery. And, you know, maybe... We will hear more from the ladies as time goes by, or maybe we won't. Maybe it will remain a mystery forever. But, you know, I think all viewpoints are, um, you know, they're acceptable. That's the whole point. Good. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Um, 
if you've not heard the episode, it's uh, it's the one before this one. It's called the Enfield Poltergeist Tapes. Uh, it is a really good episode. I think we cover a lot of this debate that we're having now. We, we go into a lot more detail. So go and check that episode out if you've not listened to it. And thank you to everyone who's putting comments and asking questions. We love that. And, uh, yeah, yeah. We'll answer what we can, or at least give you our opinion when we can. Yeah, so exactly. Th- thank you for that as well. Um, great, perfect. Well, that's cleared that up. What um, what else can we talk about, Ben? Well, I thought off the back of the Enfield Poltergeist, I I really enjoyed finding something that was um, a kind of an iconic story, and so what I've chosen for this week is something which is iconic but in a much smaller way because I don't think that many people have heard of it but it's one of the ones it's one of those stories that drew me in and made me when I was sort of first starting out in this world think good lord this is remarkable and it's the story of Sam the alien clown right. uh, or or the Sandown clown as yeah. uh, as it's also known so like probably the way to get into this is to talk about entities that portray themselves as something else. And one of my favourite books is by Mike Cleland, and it's called The Messengers. And it is about, I suppose, what you'd call screen memories. And uh, it largely focuses on owls. And so one of the... Uh, the stories that really stands out in that book is uh, the story of a uh, a woman, Karina Sables, who's heading home with her family. And at a sharp bend, this is in the US, I should say, at a, start, a sharp bend in the road, in the beam of the headlights, they saw what she could only describe as a typical grey alien standing on the side of the road. And... In her report, she says, I slammed on the brakes in the middle of the road and screamed. And the children and I began to shake uncontrollably. But oddly, Rob, my husband, just calmly turned to me and said, what are you guys so worried about? It's only a big owl. And that, for me, encompasses the sort of the core element of Sam the Sandown Clown. Okay. So... The story of Sam the Sandan Clown starts in spring 1973. And brilliantly for us in the UK, this is a UK-based story. But it revolves around two children who they have a run-in with this inexplicable clown-like entity. So they are staying in uh, on the Isle of Wight. And for anybody that doesn't know, the Isle of Wight, it's in the sort of southeast region of England, in the English Channel. Uh, it's about two miles off the coast. It's a popular holiday resort, but it's also like, you know, it's it's a residential place. It's, it's part of the British Isles. It's where people live. And these two kids are, are staying there. And about four o'clock in the afternoon on the day in question... We have a seven-year-old girl called Faye. Now, this is a pseudonym, and this has always been 
I'll always talk in pseudonyms on this story because we don't actually know the true identities of these kids. Um, the way that it was reported by their parents, they disguised the names of their kids. So Faye was wandering across a golf course on this aisle with a male friend who was approximately the same age. So we got two seven-year-old kids who are friends. They're not related. And they're both exploring the nooks and crannies and hills of the big expanse of this golf course. They're just being kids, right? It's four o'clock, sunny afternoon. And then in the distance, they hear the wail of an ambulance siren, which doesn't sound peculiar, but from where they are, which is an incredibly rural location, it is weird. So they decide to follow the noise and see what's going on because to them, yes, it the closest they can come up with is that it sounds like an ambulance siren, but it may not be. They're just curious. They want to go and find out. And again, we're talking the early 70s. This is You might think, well, where are their parents? Why are they allowed to roam freely? The Isle of Wight is a gentle place at this time. There's no reason why the kids wouldn't be roaming free. Well, any any kid in the 70s. It's one of those things where you kind of realise what generation you are when you talk to the younger generation. And you go, yeah, no, we just, like, around that age, I'd just go out at the start of the day and... I'd probably come back at kind of tea time. Yes. And <laughs> nobody know. would think any different of it. Yeah, yeah. My my wife told me the story of she would quite regularly, younger when she was about four or five, get up before her parents and le- go out of the house and go to the neighbours about five doors down because she'd go and have some breakfast with them. She'd knock oh, on the door. That's actually really cute. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, so, sorry, it's a side point, but... I was thinking that way you were saying it. People might go, oh, well, what are they doing wandering about? You did back in the 70s, right? Yeah, you you t- completely did. You completely did. And so these seven-year-old explorers, they push through the thick hedgerow and make their way through what is a swampy pasture, pursuing the, the noise of this siren. And they end up in a place which is... Um, just off the airport, the Sandown Airport, hence the name of uh, this entity. And that is where they become aware that the shrieking has ceased. So they've kind of pushed through some difficult walking. They're next to the airport, and then this noise ceases. But they're still curious, right? So they do a little bit of a search of the area and they're looking for what could have made this noise. They still can't work it out. But in front of them is this wooden footbridge that goes over a narrow creek. And this creek is sort of what separates this kind of brushy scrubland from the outer reaches of the airport. And (laughs) this is when things go nuts because as they start to cross the bridge a three-fingered hand in what appears to be a blue glove comes from underneath the bridge and urges the youngsters to come forward so it is 
it it's that typical it's almost like a horror film it's beckoning yeah. them with these three cartoonish fingers well it's almost like a um like a shockhead peter type story isn't it oh yeah yeah you're right yes <laughs> do you know what i mean it, it's there's something about it that just, i was as you described it that's what came into my mind yeah, yeah. so the kids they describe themselves as being more curious than concerned and they don't run away. And as they don't run away, this humanoid figure rises from beneath the bridge. And the description that I'm going to give you comes from the British UFO Research Association journal, uh, which... Very specifically, is volume five, uh, volume six, number five, January, February, nineteen seventy-eight, and is from an article written by a gentleman called Norman Oliver, entitled uh, "Report Extra: Ghost or Spaceman." Excellent. So good referencing there, Ben. <laughs> thank you. I always like to make sure everyone gets a reference. <laughs> yeah, good. So the children describe him thus. He was nearly seven feet tall and had no neck, for his head appeared to be wedged straight onto his shoulders. He wore a yellow pointed hat, which interlocked with the red collar of a tattered green tunic. A round black knob, don't laugh, was affixed to the top of his hat and wooden antenna were attached either side. Now that is a wow. it's a peculiar thing, the, the fact they call them antenna, but, you know, and wooden... But, yeah, okay. The face had triangular markings for eyes, a brown square of a nose, and motionless yellow lips. Other round markings were on his paper-white cheeks, and a fringe of red hair fell onto his forehead. Wooden slats protruded from his sleeves, and from below, his white trousers. So, wow, that's a hell of a description, and I, and I have seen images of it, and we will put them in our photo album uh, that we do for every episode. It, I mean, it's such an unusual looking thing. You know, you, you might get an idea if you've not seen it from the description. If you're listening and you can Google, do a Google, but we will put the uh, the links to the pictures. It, it's a weird image, that isn't it? It is a weird image, and. I think one of the things that sort of rings slight alarm bells on the sceptical side is this consistent naming of the materials that different things are made of. Right. Like, uh, it, and you don't know who is doing this, whether it is the reporter or whether it's the children. I'd rather say it was the reporter because I think it might be difficult for a seven-year-old to articulate themselves in that way. But the fact that um, we talk about wooden slats protruding, protruding from his right. sleeves and from below his right. white trousers, the fact that they're wooden, it feels like it would be more accurate unless you have, you know, physically touched them, which we will find out later on they haven't. Yeah. Um, or being told by the entity that that's what they are, it it feels like that is the assumption. It's it it feels like it would be a, been more accurate to say it looked like he had wooden slats protruding. Yeah. 
Um, it's the amount of detail as well. I don't think I've ever come across a description of any kind of entity, whether alien or ghost-like, that has that amount of detail. It's incredible detail. It is incredibly detailed, but I do think that that... I, I think that is a very salient point because I think a lot of people might say, well, they might say, how did you get that from a brief encounter? What we'll learn as we go on is that this isn't a brief encounter. But also, when you see something out of um, out of the norm, you tend to, as a human being, take in more of the details. So it's quite difficult if you if you're walking down a, a path and you see, you know, a six foot tall man with brown hair wearing a red jumper, blue jeans and black oh, yeah. trainers. Like it's quite difficult because it doesn't stand out. But if he was wearing a pink jumpsuit, he had deep set eyeliner and was doing the macarena you'd remember it wouldn't you but but if we all wore all right i only did that once <laughs> <laughs> well you say that yeah but you know what i mean if yeah, it stands yeah. out and and this guy really stands out because yeah it's amazing he you know he it doesn't look like anything they will encounter so all of those things register in the brain yeah like uh, so far my only beef with it is the fact that they're so prescriptive about these wooden panels but okay all right anyway we move on so at this point the the kids notice that he's fumbling through a book that he's holding and we're going to call him he because like he doesn't identify another in any other way but the the book that he's fumbling through he drops it into the water and the two kids look on as he splashes around in the water to try and find the book and they describe this as being clown like they describe it's almost like it is a a slapstick move and after do we know if that's deliberately or just kind of no naturally naturally. no no we literally like literally in the literal sense of the word (laughs) we have no idea like spoiler alert i'm not going to tell you what this entity is because we don't know so (laughs) he doesn't (laughs) he yeah he 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 might be doing it on purpose right. uh, or it might be doing it as an affectation. We don't know. But what we do know is after it gets its book back, it leaps out of the water and um, <laughs> it then moves away from the children. And the movement that it does is described as being a high-kneed hopping gait similar to that of an astronaut walking around on a lunar surface. So you can imagine it's sort of, it's not even John Cleese, Monty Python-esque. It's kind of, it's like a comedy run with the knees kind of going up to the chest and and exaggerated movements. Um, And then, that, that is by no means the end of it, as the kids look on, he disappears inside what appears to be a small windowless metallic hut 
and the kids compare it to what you might find on a construction site and and i think again we're talking on uh you know in the 1970s a construction site would have these um sort of uh i guess like semi-circular in profile uh huts made with corrugated iron over the top i was gonna say corrugated iron was coming to my mind yeah yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Because they're the, temporary structures, but they're temporary like, structures. They're not plastic. They're they, they, they yeah, t- temporary, but they have got some meat yes. to them. If you so, and them. and this is the days before, you know, mobile catering, mobile loos. Within yeah. these things, if you're working on a on a road project or a construction project for weeks on end, you need somewhere to be able to, you know, heat up some food put in a temporary toilet and that's what those were they're sort of i suppose they look like metallic polytunnels that's yeah, yeah. that's that's the way to think about it um but the children just kind of stare on and then think okay this is it's probably time to leave so they turn tail when they're about 150 feet away and again I don't know who is this who is establishing the 150 feet. I guess this is something that is agreed between the children who are telling the story and the person who is relaying it to us. Yeah. So I think again, perhaps take that piece with um a bit of a pinch of salt. But yeah. anyway, the relayed story is when they're 150 feet away, the entity re-emerges and <laughs> This time, he's got something in his hand. He has got, and I quote, a black knob microphone. The 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 reference to knobs in this piece is too much. I'm going to say it is a microphone with some black buttons on it. Yeah. And the key point to it, it also has a white flex attached to a small box, which apparently served as an amplifier. So... What we've got is, it's like he's got a one-man karaoke device. He's about to give us a rendition of Wuthering Heights after (laughs) disappearing into a workman's hut and showing his three-fingered glove to the children. I'm just thinking... This was David Bowie in a dark period. He went well, to the he went to the Isle of Wight trying to get a new look going, and then just went, "Oh God, no! I better ditch that." Isn't it Bowie? It's really Bowie esque. It's really Bowie esque. Yeah, absolutely. And and all of the pictures that we're going to put on the social, they are very Bowie esque as well. Yeah. I it yeah. I think there is, you know. You could say that perhaps there's some influence there in the children's imagination, perhaps. But it's, well, well, what what year we're saying this is seventy seventy three. Yeah, I'm just trying to kind of get my bowiness into connection here. Well, seventy three yeah, feels slightly yeah, too early for Ziggy. Uh, well, let's just have a think. No, it's that's kind of no. Actually, that is prime Ziggy. Is it? 72 to 74, Ziggy Stardust time. So we've got a mechanised Bowie. Yeah. 
Yeah. Or or a, a, it could be a looky likey that's got <laughs> that just has got it horribly wrong. Um, oh no, well, that maybe is Ziggy, that is Ziggy time. That's interesting, actually. Yeah, cool. Carry on. No, that's a really good point. Well, anyway, the the kids report that this wailing noise immediately returns, and it's so loud. It is Bowie. <laughs> <laughs> it's so loud that the boy runs away. Um, but then, then this is the first time the entity starts to speak, and it, it appears that he speaks into the microphone because it appears to be amplified through the device wow. that he's holding. And the kids claim that um, he shouted, are you still here? And at this point, the kids stop running, and they sort of implicitly between them reach this conclusion that the entity has a friendly, non-threatening voice. And again, their sort of curiosity takes the better of them. And despite the fact that they've been sort of had this stranger danger training drilled into them at school, they, they turn around and head back towards it, which I think is extraordinary, but that is the way they tell it. And... Uh, they, when they get closer, they realise that the clown has got his book open and uh, he writes a message on it. So he stops talking at this point and he he, he scrawls something and then sh- turns it around and shows it to them. And he says, hello, and I am all colours, comma, Sam. And that, so this is weird already. So, so he's sorry, sorry. Is it? I am all colours, Sam. Not commas. Colours, right? I, I'm all colours, comma right. Sam. Right. So it's okay. like okay. I'm all yeah, colours. Yeah, yeah. So it's not. He's not. Yeah. He's he's not calling himself. I'm all colours, Sam. Yeah. He says I'm all colours, and then Sam. Yeah. Wow. And. One of the things that the kids notice, first of all, is um, that, well, obviously he's been, he communicated verbally and then with, uh, with some writing in a book. And later on, Faye, the, the seven-year-old girl, remember, would, she would tell investigators that even though this thing was able to speak perfect English, the sounds that it made uh, were like an individual incapable of opening their mouth properly, like it, it was wearing a mask or it had something in, you, you know, it, it, they were holding something in their mouth. I guess you might, uh, like, I'm putting words in their mouth now, but you might say it was like a Darth Vader type of thing. Right, right. And so at this point, the kids start having, you know, they they engage this thing in conversation and they ask him, the first thing they ask him, in fact, is why his clothes are all torn. And Sam verbally replies, it's because they're the only clothes he has available. And 
Faye then describes the fact that she's really taken in by the look of the this thing, how peculiar it is. It's strangely immobile features. She once again points out this paper white skin, unlike you you know the the skin of perhaps people she's familiar with, which would be perhaps you know pinker. Um, but this is this is plain white. And she musters the courage to ask Sam if he's human. And he simply says no. Verbally, he says no. And so then, thinking quickly, she says, are you a ghost? And he says, well, not really, but I am in an odd sort of way. And so... (laughs) Then the kids quite rightly go, well, what are you then? And Sam vaguely replies, you know, and then adds no further explanation to that part of the conversation. (laughs) You know. You know. know. And and I really love the vagueness and there's so much to unpack in that. But I'm I'm loving loving everything about Sam the Sandown Clown so far. Yeah, yeah. Even even his little karaoke machine. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) But also the fact that he's that's a very um, it's not only a human thing; it's a very British thing to go. You know, you know. It's it's if someone said, you know, how was that meeting you had last Monday? You know. What's interesting about it, and again, if you you can, if you're going skeptic, you're going to go. That's how a kid would kind of imagine and make up this thing. But if you if you're going in a non-skeptic direction, if this thing knows it's talking to children, it it, it feels like a very. It's, it feels like a way an adult talks to a child, but in a in an entertaining way, almost like a clown would at a party. Which is, I guess, you could argue that both ways, skeptic yeah. or non-skeptic. It's interesting. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. That's exactly right. And it feels like he hasn't gone out of his way so far to like draw the kids in, but um, at the same time, it it does feel like he's not doing anything which would deliberately scare them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So then the entity goes on to explain that um, he doesn't have a real name. So although he says, oh, you know, uh, I indicated that my name was Sam, he says he actually doesn't have a name. He also intriguingly goes on to claim that there were others like him on Earth and further confessed he was frightened of people and scared they might hurt him, stating that if he were attacked, he would not fight back, which is absolutely the opposite that I would assume (laughs) if a mechanised clown in a tin hut beckoned me from under a bridge. This is like the anti like it film yeah. isn't it well i guess we would be brought up on those kind of horror movies or horror stories and uh even the alien connection uh, we've been brought up those height of the cold war uh ufo movies where they are just coming to take us over aren't they 
explore yeah. the worlds. Well, and they're just they're just friendly little clouds, or big clouds, really, or big clouds. So this is, I think, this is the next step in the story, and this is probably where if I was Faye or her friend, I <laughs> I would definitely not have done this because Sam then invites the children to get into his hut. Right, okay. And they agree. And the way that they get in there, and don't forget, it is appears to be metal-sided. Again, yeah. I'm just going to add the caveat of... Corrugated you know, iron. We got, what yeah. are the materials that are involved here? Yeah. But it's definitely windowless, and there's a small flap in the side... And the kids have to climb, uh, crawl through, and Sam follows. Okay. So they describe it, and and I think this Sorry, is before you go on to that. Even in the seventies, even as a parent in the seventies, I think you'd definitely be having a big chat with those kids when they came home, wouldn't you? Right. Yes, you would. Uh, but the next bit of the description. It's funny you said Bowie, because when I was researching this, I hadn't gone Bowie, but the next bit made me go Doctor Who. Okay. And um, when I went Doctor Who, like I will give you the description that the kids give of being inside his heart in a second. But do you remember, and this is like for people in America, you are going to need to get onto your BritBox subscription. We're not mm-hmm. sponsored. But... Um, Doctor Who monsters used to be like pretty well known as being perhaps a little bit l- low rent. I think is probably yeah. a fair way of putting it. Rough and ready. Rough and ready. And there was a a monster that was made up of licorice all sorts. And I think he was. <laughs> do you remember this? I, do I can't remember. remember that. I can't remember what he was called, but. There was in the UK. There was uh, there. There are these sweets called licorice all sorts, which are kind of like brightly coloured, and they are cylindrical and square. And there was a a very friendly creature, sort of not too dissimilar to your Stay Puft Marshmallow Man that used to advertise them, Mister Bertie Bassett. But the Doctor Who people had taken that and turned it evil. It's and called the Candyman. The Candyman. Thank you. I was all through that sentence. I was trying to remember it. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So it was at this point where, in my mind, things went Doctor Who-ish, and I thought, oh, okay, this Harlequin dude, he reminds me of the Candyman, and all the terrifying mother I can't sleep. I know I'm only five, but I was watching this terrifying sci-fi. And you do realise just by mentioning him, you have started an incredible debate out there amongst the Doctor Who hardcore fans about how bad the Candyman is for a hardcore fan. Well... It's a kind of jumping the shark moment, I think, in Doctor Who. Yes. my, My understanding of it. I mean, I suppose it depends on where you are in... The age group were watching watching Doctor Who because, like, if you go most terrifying number ten Daleks, 
Yeah. Also number 10, like, Cybermen. Yeah. Number one, I don't know, The Ood. Yeah. I would say Candyman. Thank you for reminding me. He's probably, like, four. Yeah. But if, it if you're... Quite, it's quite... I'm looking at it now. It is... You could make it really scary. There are a few pictures of it where it does look a bit scary, but mm. I guess seeing it in a still and seeing it moving, I, I can't remember it moving. So, you know, I'm sure I've, it hasn't dated well. You'd be a brave person to be in the Doctor Who writing room right now where people Bring are going, back. yeah, I'm pitching a 10-part series starring the Daleks. Are you now? Well... Let me tell you something about the Candyman. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, anyway. quick aside, there, were, where, uh, there was one point where um, I was asked to pitch a game for when Doctor Who first came back. And I developed this game idea, which I pitched. Didn't get the pitch. Um, and the first pitch I did, it had Daleks in. And they were very adamant that the new series of Doctor Who would never have Daleks in, that the Daleks were dead and buried and finished and they would never have it. It didn't take them long to bring them back. Ooh, that sounds like there was a rights thing going on. Maybe, maybe, yeah. You can't have Doctor Who without the Daleks. No. Anyway, we digress. Back, back. We, the, we um, do digress. And the only thing I want to say about Doctor Who is bring back K-9. K-9 is the best <laughs> Doctor Who character ever. Anyway... Going back to Faye's story. So she's crawled through this flap-like opening, as has the the boy who's with her, and then Sam has followed behind. And she describes the hut. It's divided into two levels, and I really like the first bit of this, this description. The lower level had blue-green wallpaper and was covered in a pattern of dials. It also had an electric heater. And again, I'm going to go back to my problem with describing materials. She says it has some basic wooden furniture. The upper level was not as expansive and had a metal floor. So Sam... Then so, goes on. So, so sorry. The implication from all this is, it's a spaceship, right? Is what I'm getting. Well, I, th- yeah. I mean, I think the implication is whatever you read the implication to be. But yeah, yeah. that's why it becomes Doctor Whoish for me because that is kind of it feels Tardisy to me. Right, that's right. that's where my mind went. Yep. Um, and I suppose the other problem with it is something... It's difficult for a seven-year-old to describe something accurately, dimensionally, because everything looks big to a seven-year-old. I think yeah. we all know that by experience. Whereas, like, so they're crawling through something. Sam's crawling through behind them. Like the way that they had originally described his height, yeah, it shouldn't yeah, it yeah. shouldn't work. Yeah, so there's there's a bit of a contradiction there, and that 
I think, again, is problematic in the story. But, again, I think the story is so nuts that you... Like like you say, it probably isn't beyond the realms of possibility for those kids to have gone on a bit of a, you know, a fantasy adventure with all the pop culture at the time. But on the other hand, they would have had to have done some inventiveness around the dialogue and the conversation. And then I think this is also like something that I don't think a seven-year-old would necessarily have come up with. And again, I think it's only something that you could take a subjective view on. I don't think you could be objective about it. But um, once the kids are in there, they get talking and they they get onto the subject of what Sam eats. And he says that he survives feeding on berries that he... (laughs) This is very true. It's very weird. He collects in the late afternoon and that he gets his water from the nearby river, but he cleans it before consuming it. And again, in the uh, the sort of the relaying of this conversation, it's pointed out that the purification process is not described. So... <laughs> well, um, one question I, ha- I have, and you probably... Maybe there, there is, as you said, the names have been changed and it's not a direct report. Do we? They were on holiday in the Isle of Wight. These children, is that right? Um, they they are they're staying with family. Okay, so it's not like I was. I started thinking of camping while you were describing mm-hmm. all that purifying water and tap, right. Oh, I see where you're going. And you know, small spaces yeah. and crawling in and out of tents came to mind. I wondered if they were on a camping holiday. I see what you mean. So that would have given them the idea to talk about those. Yeah, the things. imagination of like yes. you know your TARDIS-like spaces and crawling through, you know, because I know that camping is quite a big thing in the Isle in the Isle of Wight. So yes, okay, I, I, no, that is a very very good point. And like anybody that has like the Isle of Wight is quite well known for um, well. I say quite well known. It's not like it's internationally famous, but for people who enjoy picking blackberries, like I enjoy picking blackberries, it is there are good blackberry brambles in the Isle of Wight, and so those kids' parents could quite well have said, "Oh, you know, we should pick these these blackberries," and yeah. oh. You know, you could imagine a throwaway comment. Oh, we could live on these. There's, there's so many of them. Yeah, yeah, and all of you make sure you pack those water tablets. You know, they, it's that kind of thing you pack on those kind yes. of holidays that you never ever use, but you pack them. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Yeah. Well, it's funny you should say that because I think that um, sterilization tablets were a much bigger thing when I was younger than they are now, but. You're right. When we used to go on, there was a particular place that we would go on holiday. And I'm now, God, I I always age myself in these podcasts, but it'd be about 1982. And it was a holiday cottage in the middle of Boshaston, which is in a very remote part of the UK. And um, the, the water from the tap came from its own borehole. And my mother absolutely insisted on sterilizing all the water that came out of there that was going to be drunk or used for 
tooth washing. And so we're talking nine years after this event, I have got my own family insisting that before we have a cup of tea, the water that comes out of the tap on mainland UK is sterilised, even if it's going to be boiled. So you're right. There is something... There's, again, there's a problem with the story here, isn't there? Well, you know, again... um again looking at it from a a, a skeptic's point of view there are so many elements of this that could tie into culture of the time and things that kids are being exposed to so i'm slightly older than you (laughs) i'm back to david bowie i remember and i don't know how long the record had been out i remember being on holiday in a in an ice cream parlor and I'd heard the week before uh, David Bowie's Space Oddity on on the radio and they had a jukebox in this place and they had that Bowie track on uh, on the jukebox. And I remember annoying pretty much everyone in this ice cream parlour because I just kept playing it over and over again because it was just something about that song just captured your imagination of kind of space and and the look of bowie you know i'm not saying this is what happened with these kids but no no i get you and and like you said doctor who and being on holiday and if you are camping and going in and out of tents it's all you could see why this brilliant fantastical story could have come from if it's made up you Mm. know and and it is fantastic well the final part of the story is i don't know if it's outlandish or not like now that i'm about to speak it down this microphone i sort of feel like after what you just said it is reminiscent of a um a fun uncle in a way okay. yeah yeah so when they're inside the hut and after we've got the past the previous conversations <laughs> it is reported that sam takes his hat off and reveals a pair of rounded white ears and a sparse patch of brownish hair so like that is quite a that's quite a thing. So it's like we've got a humanoid figure with a humanoid yet cybernetic face yeah. looking like a clown, perhaps a harlequin. It's then got white furry ears. Like it doesn't say this, but the way that it comes across, it's, a, it's like they're giant sort of mouse ears. Right. And then... And this is something that both children testified to, apparently. The, the, the entity put a berry in his ear, right. then loached his head forward, causing the berry to disappear, and it reappeared in one of his triangular eye sockets. And then after repeating the head movement, the berry reached his mouth. Now... If my uncle could do that, he would do that. <laughs> yeah. That is the sort of thing that you would do to impress a seven-year-old. Yeah. 
like like pulling a coin from behind your ear. Exactly. Or doing that thing where you pretend to bring a goldfish out and eat it, but it's actually a piece of carrot in yeah. a glass. Yeah. 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 Um and so all of those those things, it is a remarkable story, and there is a lot to it there. And I think the most mysterious part of it is probably the description of the entity which takes you know a lot of imagination but again it's not beyond a seven-year-old's imagination and also the way that they're drawn into it the the sound of the siren i think that's quite curious in that i think again i have to put myself in the mind of my seven-year-old self and I'm not sure that would have been the most obvious way of doing it. I think yeah. you might have felt like, oh, I saw a light or I heard a voice, but an ambulance siren, I think it's a weird way to get into this story. Yeah. The other thing that keeps coming to my mind, again, if we're doing other cultural references, and it's not from the time, it's a lot more modern than that, uh, is... is uh, an animation that's quite big in our household called Over the Garden Wall. I don't know if you've ever seen or heard about that. No, I haven't, no. Um, And whether you have kids or not, I'm sure it's available. I'm not sure where it's available, but it'll be available somewhere. It's, It's, I don't know how many parts, it's in a number of parts. It's, it's surreal, crazy weirdness. And, all the time you're watching it thinking, I kind of know what's going on, but I've no idea what's going on. I, I, I'm not going to tell you any more than that. It's very surreal. But the imagery, the style of what you're talking about reminds me very much of that. It's kind of a kid's innocence and then just fantastical and then bits that are sinister but never really you never really feel that anybody's in jeopardy it's just a bit a bit alice in wonderland like that's the other thing that's coming to my mind i think you're absolutely right with that alice in wonderland thing but also what it made me think of were all of the stories that are based around entities that aren't human pretending to be human yeah. So I started off with that um uh the the you know the the greys um pretending to be owls with a screen memory. Yeah. But this is something huge in popular culture. It isn't just for example um the terminator and Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is also like Blade Runner. This is also Battlestar Galactica, where the Cylons have evolved to be something that makes them look quite human. There's a a huge history of humans coming up with stories where there is something which supposedly looks human but isn't. And I think... Before we started this, I really hadn't considered the Bowie thing. But if we go back to 1973, we're in a pretty like particular part of Western culture where 
we've got pop music, we've got people who are dressing outside of mm. the norm. We absolutely have an emerging sci-fi and we also have a culture, I think, at that time where children, not only are they freer, but perhaps they are given more of a license to tell stories and perhaps those kids and I'm not saying they're lying it this might be a hundred percent the truth this absolutely isn't me dissing those kids but maybe they thought well this is a great story to tell our parents you know maybe they're experimenting with their own imagination and and yeah and but it also doesn't that in a way that sounds quite cynical. I, I could see them actually believing, having an adventure and kind of wanting to believe it. And yeah, I you could. Know, and I think you know the imagination of a child is incredible. And and like you said, it could be all. All these elements could be normal everyday elements of them on their holiday adventure. That in their mind they're interpreting in this fantastical way and that's stuck with them you know that's right and i'm not saying i'm not saying that is what happened i'm just saying you know i think what interests me as well about it is um you know you, you made all those cultural references of you know cylons and terminator and all those kind of things this does feel like and that's what's really intriguing about it a child's version of those things do you know what i mean that's not overly scary that's not threatening whereas in a kind of adult it makes me think actually as adults in lots of ways we become so cliched but actually kids don't have that cliched view on the world yeah yeah i've i I think that's absolutely right absolutely right it reminds me actually it reminds me a bit of so my son is 10 and we've got a field behind us And there's a pack. It is quite weird. There's a re- big patch of kind of wasteland there that has been flattened down for no reason that we can figure out. And it's in a, it's in a weird kind of cigar-like shape. Um, there's like bits of wheat that are kind of it's a bit crop circly. All the bits of wheat are broken down. There's no real pattern to it. And and he said to me, oh, "What do you think caused that? Well, how has that happened?" So I've no idea. It's really odd. And this was about, we noticed it probably about five months ago. And pretty much every other day, he comes up with a new theory about <laughs> what it could have been. And they, you know, they're fantastical from a, oh yeah, maybe it was a giant who just had to lie down for half an hour and then had to get up and go somewhere. You know, they kind of range from a helicopter landed there maybe to just the most outlandish things. But it never ceases to amaze me of even after months, he mm. can still come up with these great things for a little patch of grass that's been kind of flattened. Mm. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I think that that is something that we absolutely need to bear in mind when we're listening and hearing these stories. Like Sam the Sandown Clown, it has been covered a lot and it's been covered quite factually and that's you know that is the correct way to do it but it's kind of interesting if you start thinking about it it isn't 
like the the alternative explanation isn't somebody lying it is children finding joy in something that they did it is like for example i know that they probably didn't but um the way where where i live in the country and in fact you as well peter if you walk it down any of the major rivers like the seven or the thames you'll find a lot of pillboxes and those are from the second world war and they have a load of history around them but young children will not understand and there's no reason why they could understand or even comprehend the reason why they're there so they might make up reasons why these peculiar concrete structures are there yeah and i can completely understand why a couple of seven-year-old friends who are having a fantastic time on the Isle of Wight in 1973 in the sunshine find themselves crossing over a bridge, getting close to an airport, going into a little building and they're telling each other stories of things that they've imagined, that they've seen on Doctor Who, like, you, they've seen images of people on top of the pops yeah. and they well, turn it into a story and it wouldn't be a lie when they go back to their parents and say, this is what happened. Yeah. I don't think they're thinking of it as a lie. They're thinking of it as an amazing sort of inventive story yeah. about the cool day they've had. Well, I think also and, that time as well. I think you touched on it a little bit earlier, but that time. But let's take Bowie for instance. I mean, I've I've seen a lot of documentaries about you know musicians who were influenced by Bowie in that kind of Ziggy time of you know the early seventies, and saying you know so many of them say the first time that David Bowie appeared on top of the Pops, which was a big music show in the UK that everybody watched because there's like, what, three, four channels, three channels at that point. Three channels, yeah. Three channels of TV to turn, no internet. And they said as soon as they saw him, it was like, my God, what is that? You know what I mean? It was so shocking, whereas now we're kind of bombarded with images of everything. But it was like some kind of alien creature had just appeared on your TV. And I'm not saying that's influenced what's happened here, but no, no, that cultural change was massive around that time. Well, that, that is, again, you've, you've made me think of something else because um, you're absolutely right. In 1973. So I was born in 75, but um, in 1982, we got a fourth channel, channel four, and uh, that sort of added some bits and pieces to my imagination. But there was a point, and I can't remember whether it was on BBC or Channel 4, but when Michael Jackson's Thriller video came out, Mm. I had never thought about werewolves. In fact, werewolves were only something that happened in Scooby-Doo. Yeah, And then I remember this, it was like in the schedules, it was like put there in the Radio Times, in the ma- in the TV listing magazines. This is the new Michael Jackson video. 
and watching it, watching it with my dad, and my dad saying, "Don't worry, it's it's just a music video. You don't need to be scared." But actually being scared and thinking, "Okay, now I'm quite worried about werewolves." So I can imagine if I had had any experiences beyond that, where I had you know, had cause to invent a story about a werewolf, it would have been influenced by that video. Yeah. So, yeah, I I see where you're coming from. <laughs> although although uh, there's a couple of bits, there's a, there's a kind of another alternative paranormal thing which I'm thinking of, but before we, I, I mention that, <laughs> I'm still going with my theory that basically, because it is around the time, I think, Bowie had decided he wanted to kill off Ziggy Stardust he goes to the Isle of Wight and lives in a little kind of corrugated iron shack to work on his look. <laughs> he comes up with this new look, which is a bit clown-like, bumps into these two kids who just go, oh, it's rubbish. <laughs> he, co- <laughs> he comes back. <laughs> he comes back and goes, oh, he speaks to Mick Ronson or whatever and says, "It's uh, yeah, no, I couldn't. my new look's just not working. Gets really pissed <laughs> off about it on stage and then kills off Ziggy and the whole band <laughs> in a kind of fit of peak. So these two kids were have responsible a lot to for answer the death for. of Ziggy Stardust. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? That is absolutely as believable as Yeah, an alien disguising itself as a as a clown. I love the fact that they, that the, there's that amazing fact about um, that gig where Bowie killed off Ziggy, and the, I think the band didn't know that he, he was. They thought he was joking on stage, but he killed off Ziggy and the band. And um, apparently, <laughs> if you take the number of people who say they were at that gig, which was I think it was at Hammersmith Odeon which I guess, what, a couple of thousand people could fit in there? Yeah, I guess so, yeah. If you took all the people who said they were there, <laughs> you would actually, he would have been able to feel Wembley State. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, I was there. I was there for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, maybe Faye and her friend would be Yeah. The other point that. I was going to make, and I think you may have you may have been alluding to it with how you started talking uh, about the owls and the story of the people seeing the alien and the father. Yeah, or yeah the screen memories. Yeah, yeah, the screen memory thing. And that reminded me a bit of uh, our conversation with Ruth Roper-Wilde about what people see. And actually, in some ways, if it is an entity, is it trying to project something that makes the people who are viewing it comfortable or they can't comprehend what they're seeing so put their own spin on what they're seeing or their own interpretation so you know if you're going to do a non-skeptical view that could easily be the case in this case yeah yeah no i think that's absolutely right and and on the non-skeptical view i think um those details about sort of bringing a you know like a public address system out those are peculiar details that perhaps i wouldn't expect a seven-year-old to 
volunteer from their own imagination. Yeah, yeah. Th- those are those are strange things. Well, I, g- and, I guess that's that's kind of alluded to in the story as well, isn't it? With the the ground floor looking like it had dials and stuff. Like I was picking up on that. Oh, that's yeah. a spaceship. You know. Oh, is that? Are they interpreting some communicator or translator? as as a way you know having a mic and a and a uh an amp you know it, they, all that was going through my mind which is possible yeah 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 totally yeah i like i don't think there is any way of course we'll ever solve this but it just it is one of those peculiar remarkable uh sort of tales that is so enigmatic that yeah. it could go either way. Well, we've, and, we've said this a lot. We said it. I've said it a few times on some of the stories we've done. And you know, Jeff, Jeff the Talking Mongoose, who we frequently reference, is another example of that. And I think I said on the Jeff episode, and it's the same with this one. I don't really care. It's just such a lovely story. It's an amazing image. Whether it was some paranormal alien encounter or whether it's purely from the mind of these two children it's 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 intriguing and it's sweet and it's i don't know it's just lovely yeah i think you make a good point like jeff the talking mongoose even if he's not real i want him to be real this to be real and i want yeah I want this to be real because the the thought of these peculiar entities in this very mundane, sometimes grey and flat world brings joy to people who are looking for something else. You're not just and talking I, about the Isle of Wight, you're talking about the whole world there. Okay. Right? I just want to clarify <laughs> that. For... for <laughs> <laughs> The Isle of Wight Tourist Board, yeah. I wasn't talking to you. Yeah, we were I was talking, about talking the world about, in general. I was talking about existing in general. Yeah. And sometimes, and I think we all feel this more with all the lockdowns and all the horrible problems in the world, like all of these things give us something else to think about. But if... The if the thing that you think about, even if it isn't real, the fact that we might have a sentient mongoose that is non-corporeal, or we might have a clown from Alpha Centauri who lives in a workman's hut. Yeah. It's beautiful. joyful. It's beautiful. It's so beautiful, absolutely. I mean, it's so much better than some kind of grey with spindly hands kind of probing you where he shouldn't. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's, well, what a lovely story that is. The the, the clown one, not the probing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no. Anal probes, <laughs> no. 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 Karaoke clouds, yes. Cool. Very good. I I like the way you put that. Um, well, that ends the story of Sam the Sandown Clown, I, and I don't is. think we will ever finish it properly. But I yeah. don't care. I really don't care. It's just 
there's something lovely and charming about it and that's what I'm going to take away from it. I mean, I'm, I've got it up on my computer now. I'm looking at somebody's drawing of Sam the Sandown Clown and I think the world's a better place with that picture in it. Yeah. Yeah. I, th- I think if we take it at face value, he seems like a nice entity and he didn't cause any harm to the kids. Yeah. They seem to enjoy their experience with it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I think it's all it's all good. Like, I can imagine if I was seven, I would have really loved to have met him. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it also makes me think if it did come from the kids' imagination, Hollywood needs to get more seven, eight, nine, ten-year-olds writing writing sci-fi movies. Oh, 100%, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I, I mean, just look at the, the description of it. It's just amazing. And and like you said, not in a kind of bad Doctor Who way. It's just us. Oh, charming. Yeah, yeah, it, it totally is. Well, like, as we always say, um, we are the storytellers and the investigators but we can't do any of those things without you contributing. So if you're listening to this and you've got something which might contribute or change the way we tell this story, please get involved with uh, one of our social channels and we'll, we'll definitely bring it up. This is a podcast which is about conversation. It isn't about broadcast and forget. Indeed, yep, yep, definitely. And, and uh, we mentioned them right at the start of the show. Keep the comments and questions coming because we do love that as well. We, it's good to have a bit of debate. Good. Well, I am going to go to bed tonight with a smile on my face thinking about the Sandown Clown. So thank you for giving <laughs> me that. Okay, I'm going to try and pretend that there is nothing weird about that. <laughs> and... <laughs> Uh, like subscribe and review yeah review review's good as well review 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 yeah good and um we'll see you next time on the quantum mechanics we'll see you next time Quantum mechanics.